Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And we got a couple topics. Uh, we have MC7 just wrapping up. We have uh, GP Portland next weekend and that we're both going to be attending. And then I am going to Command Fest DC this weekend, basically just to hang out. Not a lot of commander action going to happen for me, but my article this week on Star City is about the tier two of Pioneer. And I've physically built about 10 decks or whatever, and I'm going to have those on hand. So if people want to have fun, play some sweet Pioneer decks against me in DC, hit me up. I thought we were finally doing our Commander cast. This is very disappointing news. I've been prepping all week to get you ready for the big Command Fest, to have you all prepared with the latest Commander tech, and now I find out my time has been completely wasted. You've sent me a lot of messages and they've gone unanswered. I would have hoped that you had gotten the hint by now. I don't get hints. I just keep doing what I want to do and then let things fall where they may. Word. Uh, I mean, spinoff cast for you, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Good idea. But yeah, man, uh, tier two of Pioneer is the nuts. It is some of the most fun that I've had deck building, just like merging old standard strategies together and everything. And the problem with it is that the tier one of Pioneer is kind of busted. And maybe we'll get to a place where that's not actually the case. I mean, obviously they just let everything be legal in the format and that's how they handled the bannings and everything. And I do like that approach for sure. And we're, we're getting there. It's getting closer and closer. I don't think the guy who just broke the format can complain about the format being busted, right? Like that's kind of on you at this point. You get to bear some of the blame for things accelerating quickly and for finding the next broken deck in the format. I suppose I will take that credit. That is fine. In addition to building countless decks around Cauldron Familiar and Witches Oven in Pioneer, I also occasionally break it. So, Speaking of Cauldron Familiar and Pioneer, I played friend of the podcast, Cave Dan, in a Magic Online League, working with a spicy Cauldron Familiar Blue, black-white Cauldron Familiar. We'll have to get some info from Cave Dan on that list. It looks really nice to me. Hidden Stockpile, Anointed Procession, all that jazz? <laughs> Crested Sunmare, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was what their podcast was about last weekend. Faithless Brewing Podcast, uh, for people who want to check it out. I have not listened to that one yet. but I haven't either, but I'm going to now, because I was quite intrigued by the deck. Who won? Uh, not me. Not me. Damn. What were you yeah. playing? I was playing Sultai, a new version of Sultai that I'm working on, a little bit bigger top end. I, I wrote an article this week about Dig Through Time and how I, I think like Dig Through Time just being an okay card thus far in Pioneer is a failure of deck building and not a failure of the card itself. So I'm working on a new version of Sultai that uses Grizzly Salvage to fuel Delve stuff and then has an actual top end with Torrential Gear Hulk into Dig Through Time and trying to previously i felt like sultai was super strong in the mid game but as the game draws out super long it has problems actually closing and i wanted to see if i could fix some of that and also just make sure i was actually using my delve spells to their fullest i was somewhat successful but i was not successful against cave dan yeah your abrupt decay fatal push deck doesn't seem very good against crested sunmare unfortunately correct that was a problem card i had my okos but you know you you want to come out ahead on your Oko transactions. It's hard to do do that against Crested Sunmare. I suppose. Not really a thing that's had to, you know, come up for me. So Right. It hasn't crossed your mind yet, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. Sure. You want to start with standard? We'll just 
talk about the MC and kind of like our predictions episode and what happened, yeah. all that good jazz. So. Yeah, yeah I, re- I really enjoyed this MC. I definitely want to talk about it. First place, also friend of the podcast, Canister, Jun Sacrifice. He put on his esports gamer face and he did not lose a match. Really impressive stuff from Canister. We talked about his deck list and had some nice things to say about it. We were both very interested in the Beanstalk giant technology. Made a ton of sense with all these fires decks in the field. You're not getting your mana creatures swept any longer. The card, I mean, I'm not going to say that it shined. It was more Corval than anything else, really just shining all weekend long, looking absolutely incredible. Canister played two copies in the main and an additional one in the sideboard. Just seemed prepared for absolutely everything he faced. Played extremely, extremely well. As should be no surprise to anyone who has followed Canister and his work in the MPL thus far this season. Yeah, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, so Canister's deck, main deck Massacre Girl, four casualties of war. And for the most part, I mean, there were two copies in top eight, right? Two copies of Jun Sacrifice and the Golgari Sacrifice decks did not do particularly well. And no. really neither did the Jun ones. But like, what was it about Canister's deck? Like, the the casualties are there for mirror matches, right? And then did those end up being helpful in other matchups as well? Or it, it just feels like looking at his list and looking at what the top eight is, that his his deck would not be really well set up, you know, faring well against those decks, but yet he just crushed the entire tournament, basically. I, th- I think the deck is just extremely, extremely resilient and powerful. And regardless of how you line up against things like you may be correct that if you were picking out matchups you wouldn't have picked these matchups but your bad matchups are fine as the jun deck it's it's really hard for decks to get a huge huge statistical edge against you and i think the small tweaks mattered a lot i think not having paradise druid was a big big upgrade for canister and we saw other folks try and address the problem with things like district guide i do think canister solution is the correct one i think beanstalk giant is the way to go and i certainly have seen that followed through on with some of the players championship lists that are starting to come out. I know uh, Edgar's playing Jund Cat, also featuring Beanstalk Giant in the players championship. I thought his list looked very nice. I continue to be impressed with this archetype. I was from the beginning, obviously. And these small, small additions just, they bore fruit and the deck was so good as a baseline anyway. You say it didn't do that well, but like it was well represented and it didn't put up poor numbers. So in general, if you're pushing anything close to or above 50% as the second most represented deck in the field, then the people who are finding the technology within that archetype and getting that extra two to three to four percentage points, that's enough to take down the whole tournament for sure. Oh yeah. I I definitely agree. It's just strange to see a lot of other people struggling, you know, I mean, big names like BBD, Marcio, Greg Kowalski, all these people had like four wins, you know, with Jund and then most of the Golgari sacrifice people kind of got crushed. Like Juza went a little bit deep, but it, it is strange to me to see basically everyone struggling and then canister not lose, you know, sometimes you just have it. Hey, maybe, maybe it's just the esports gamer face. That's it. Could That's be. all it takes. Could be. So going forward, you would expect things to basically not change, right? Like the, the storyline for this tournament at one point to me seemed like, Oh, okay. Like John sacrifice is probably just not going to be a deck in the next couple weeks, but then canister ends up winning the tournament. I feel like if he lost in top eight or something like that, then that narrative would likely continue. 
But with him ultimately winning and with such a dominant performance, I feel like there are going to be a couple new archetypes that come out of MC7 and add themselves to the metagame, but mostly the percentages are not really going to shift. That seems right to me. And let's not forget that if there was another story of the tournament besides Canister winning, it's the rise of Simic Flash. That was the other big, big deck in this tournament. Incredible performance by the three players that played the deck, all making top eight. But Canister kind of farmed that deck. And if this is the clear best deck to emerge from this tournament, being in a position to play the counter to it, and I, I don't know if it's a pure counter. I think like certainly I expect those players were finding their Jund matchup to be acceptable going into this tournament. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't play the deck. So I don't think it's like a horrible, horrible matchup. And the game's played out in a close fashion a lot of the time. Uh, but I do think Jund is advantage there. And Canister showed that. And if that deck's going to be picked up in large numbers, I like just sticking with Jund. And like you said, that leads me to believe not a lot changes as we head into this next weekend. Yeah, obviously, incredible performance from Brad Nelson, Javier Dominguez, Seth Manfield, only three people to play this specific version of Simic Flash. They all made the top eight. Brad made the finals. I know that there were a few team kills along the way, too. Yeah. And Canister had to play against it like two or three times over the course of the top eight. It, I remember the matches being like 2-1. Like I didn't actually watch the top eight, but I don't know. It, it seemed like it wasn't a route, you know? Like no, the, the, it was the not. Games, the games were so close. And yeah, I would imagine that these three players played this Flash deck as a way to kind of hard target the sacrifice decks, right? Like they only have so many permanents or spells that matter. And being up against a counter spell deck with like no veil of summer, not really a whole lot of sources of card advantage or anything like that. And also the Simic decks now having like a quick clock and having an end game with like Nissa and a hydroid crisis. Like it does seem like a very difficult matchup. And then you have things like casualties of war and, Massacre Girl in your main deck that just don't do a whole lot. So I'm going to push back against that a little bit. I I think that the Simic deck was designed to hard target the Fires decks and have a fine matchup against the Jun decks because it has some problems when the Jun deck can get below it and operate like in that low resource fashion where it just has a Cauldron Familiar, which is of in Trail of Crumbs, and then that is all you ever need. And you're able to put together dominant battlefields from just those three cards and then a core vault shows up and outscales everything they can possibly do and you run away with the game and that's how basically all of canister's games played out he had some kind of engine very early that got underneath their counter magic at some point core vault came down and that was the death knell and over and over we saw that play pattern happen and again i'm not saying like jund is a huge favorite against this matchup i just think it has legs in the matchup and the real target of this deck was the fires deck yeah, I, I agree with that too. Trailer Crumbs, obviously the the most problematic card for the Simic side of things. Absolutely, right. because they they basically need to play a tempo game at that point and just put a clock on you, counter things like the Corvold that would actually allow them to stabilize. And that can be tough sometimes when you have a like cat oven that's able to just block whatever your biggest thing is. So certainly if the game gets to that point and Jund draws the, the cheap end of its deck, then... Yep. Things, things are problematic, right? But like when you're trying to resolve a bunch of three, four, five, six mana sorcery speed things uh, against a deck with like, you know, negate, mystical dispute, whatever, it's it's not going to end well. Yeah, their job is to get to two spell territory as quickly as possible. And once they're in that range, uh, they take away a lot of the counterplay that Simic has against them. Yeah, absolutely. 
But I, I would not be surprised if this this flash deck did pick up in popularity. I mean, it did really well over the course of the tournament, and I know that people like playing these flash style decks even yeah. when they're not well positioned. So to see people of this caliber pick it up, promote it, say that it is a good choice, and then also do that well with it, it's got to give people a lot of confidence in their ability to actually like pick up and pilot that deck and do well. Yeah, I have to say w- one thing I wish happened was that this deck was given a different name than Flash because I think we still tie a lot of the presumptions that we had about the last Flash decks to this version of Flash. And it's such a different deck that that's completely unfair to do. I, I hope people are adjusting their play styles appropriately because I heard a lot of people talking about oh, Flash is bad against this, Flash is bad against that. But it seemed like they hadn't updated their heuristics for this new version of the deck. So make sure you're checking any presuppositions you have about Simic Flash going into this weekend, because this is a very different deck. Yeah, the the old Simic Flash decks were exactly that. And, you know, for better or worse, they were doing the thing where they're like, well, I'm a Flash deck, all of my cards have to be instant speed. And that's not necessarily correct, you know, like you can do a thing that is against what your deck is doing if it adds another layer to it, which is what allowed these three folks to be as successful as they were. And even if you're just like, you know, counter your first two spells, play a Nissa. I mean, that's better than then trying to hold open Frilled Mystic or whatever, you know, like sure. Nissa, Nissa puts on such a huge clock. And then that combined with Hydra Graces gives you an actual end game, which they didn't really have before. Things like Spectral Sailor are just weak cards in general and Wild Pack Preserver or whatever, like the 1G Flash Reach Wolf that gets bigger. Like these are these are just weak magic cards, right? So cut some of the Flash elements, play some more powerful Mythic Rares. I think Nissa is like an honorary Mythic Rare at this point. And oh, for sure. You'll likely end up being more successful. Yeah, great job of deck building by the folks who worked on this deck for sure. They, they did a lot to change all of our perceptions about this archetype. Yeah. What else? I mean, Golgari Adventures did pretty well. Uh, Chris Kavartek, who granted, I think, is, you know, the the ham sandwich person at this point. It's just like, yeah, you put whatever deck in his hands, he's going to do well. And that's not to undersell his deck building prowess or anything. Like he has frequently made very, very good, strong innovations over the course of the last year or so. And this time is no different. His Golgari deck was quite good, but also it's clear at this point that Chris is quite good. Allie Warfield made a very deep run. Jordan Cairns did pretty well with the archetype too. Like this is another one of those decks that kind of falls to the wayside when thinking about like the sacrifice decks, because like the food decks get way more hype than the adventures archetype normally does. But I think that for this tournament specifically, and maybe even going forward, the adventures could be a stronger version of mid-range. Uh, particularly Chris's version. You and I were both very high on it going into the tournament. That played out in a lot of ways. The similar looking list to Chris's version also made day two. Uh, so if you want to like really narrow down what you're defining as Kavartek Adventures, I guess is what we can call it. I, I think that particular deck looked very, very strong against very strong competition this weekend. And it could be that's the deck that's poised to be picked up and find a lot of success uh, especially as people account for other things because people will account harder for Flash. They'll account harder for Jund because those are the decks that stole the headlines. So maybe there is some room for that deck to come in under the radar this weekend. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I mean, right? It's like this this deck like quietly did very well, yeah. but not a lot of people are talking about it because it's not as exciting 
and the changes that Chris made to the archetype, like Rotting Regisaur, Great Henge, people aren't really talking about, even though it's it's really good. Yeah, it looked impressive all weekend. Bunch of spots where just like Rotting Regisaur was the perfect card to have in the deck, particularly in terms of like play around Ether Gust, where opponent just has to look at their worthless card in hand. It came up over and over in Chris's matches. So uh, again, another really nice job of deck building and the great deck building, great play, honestly, a great broadcast. They were all on display all weekend. I, I tweeted it was the arena MC that I enjoyed the most by far because the metagame was acceptable. I don't think it's like an all-time great metagame, but it was fine. It was enough to serve as the basis of a tournament. The coverage was great. The deck building was great. And I, I just really enjoyed a lot of the event. Like I was very much tied to my screen in a way that I haven't been for the last few MCs. Yeah, I, th- I think it was the deck building aspect that kind of hooked me where these are mostly decks that we've seen before, but a lot of these players had unique innovations that right. in, in the case of Rotting Regis or Great Henge, it's like, okay, we've, we've kind of seen people doing this before, but how, how does that actually play out in this metagame post-ban and all, all that sort of stuff. Like it's enough to make it interesting. And then there's the dark horse stuff like Simic Flash, where it's like, ooh, is this is this busted or unplayable? Like we we kind of want to figure that out too. So I agree overall, not like a, a slam dunk great metagame or anything. The basically entire absence of aggro is very kinda, weird. Yeah, very weird and suspect and awkward and everything. Um I I, I don't think that people were wrong for not playing aggressive decks. You know, I I think that it was correct and it did make it kind of interesting because people knew that they weren't going to play aggro. They would play things like fires and Junsack and that allowed Seth Javier and Brad to make more of a hard read on the metagame and stuff. And like that stuff is interesting for sure. So yeah, this, this tournament was cool. Right there with you. So uh, Portland next week, what are you thinking? Just John Dinan, that's it. I've, I've talked a bit about how I really don't want to have to play Jund and Paper. Mm. So I would like to play something else. If I, if I truly believe it's the best option, I will still play it. I don't know. I, I think we're still a little bit far out. I'll have some tournaments to look at this weekend. Obviously, there's the Players' Championship. There's GP OKC. And that is standard, right? It is. So I get to look at both those tournaments, see what does well, get some more information before I have to commit to anything. If I had to play either of those tournaments, I would be playing John because I don't have enough other information that pushes me towards something else at this point. Uh, but I am open to the idea that I play something else come Portland. To be fair, GPOKC is going to have like 200 people. So it's still a magic tournament. You can still look <laughs> at know, it. I know. I know. We would I'm look at the saying. results of a PTQ. So that, I mean, it, it's functionally similar. There were also the Brisbane results, which, you know, like that tournament happened during the MC. So it's not like people had the, the full results. Like they had all the right. necklace and everything you can, you can tell, you know, like that metagame was very much a product of what people played at the MC and people just being like, Oh, I like this player. I like their decklist. I'm going to pick it up and run with it. And they didn't know how that person fared in the MC yet. So. Yep. Yeah. I didn't have much to pull from those results. I, I am looking for some more information before I make Portland decisions. All right. Well, I kind of wanted to play Rakdos Knights. I hope that people are just kind of sleeping on it. And, you know, if there's like an uptick in Flash and stuff like that, I, I like my spot there. But Kavartex Adventure Deck is also very appealing to me. Mm, I like both those options. So, yeah, I could see playing Adventures. We'll see. 
Still plenty of time, Gerald. Don't worry. We'll figure it out. We'll have something spicy. We'll share it with our Patreon supporters, of course. And check out what we're going to be playing at GP Portland. Let's make sure we get that up in time that people can get their decks together. We'll figure it out come like Wednesday or Thursday so everyone knows. Yeah, I, th- I think the best way to do it is like, here's the list I'm thinking about playing. And then a couple days later, you can post like an update if you change things or Great idea. You change your archetypes completely. So I'll be trying to do that in the future. But uh, yeah, if you want to shower me with praise and talk about how I broke it, we can do that now. Sure. Let's get to that part of the podcast. And I, I would like to shower you with praise because I think we are fair. I think when we mess up and get things wrong, we take the blame for that. We own it. Uh, and we do that quite often. But when you get something really right, I think you get to take a victory lap as well. Yeah, you kind of broke Pioneer in half. Three of the top four deck lists in the PTQ were your green, blue devotion list. So give us the story. How did we get to this list? How proud are you of putting this together? I Obviously, like you are very much known for your deck building prowess, but when I think of what you are most adept at, it's about tuning the deck list. Like, I think that is your greatest strength. This feels like more than a just tune job, though. This is something that came a little bit out of left field, I think. Is it? I don't know. So I did present a deck and a sideboarding guide that did do well and is very likely the best deck in Pioneer, as my article posited. However, this is just a standard food deck, man. Like it, it, okay. I, I really, I can't take that much credit. The The credit that I will take is being able to pinpoint like this is the best thing that you can possibly be doing. And I do think that my sideboard is quite good. There's not a lot I would want to change about the deck list. So it's like, okay, that's cool. You know, like probably got a bunch of stuff, right? But realistically, it's just like, just do the broken stuff, man. Like, that's that is what's going to end up being good. But realistically, uh, there's there's the week, you know, like Thanksgiving week where they had a Pioneer PTQ every day. And looking at the results from that, it was like these Simic shells are doing really, really good. And I think they just need a little bit of tuning. And I, I kind of noted this in the article, too, where like the original list came from and a tournament in Japan, basically, where they had. Mutavolt instead of Nykthos, Brazen Borrower, but also just had like, you know, Krasis, Wicked Wolf, Nissa, Oko, Goose, whatever. And that deck started doing really well. I could see how that deck would struggle against Mono Black Aggro. And with Copter being banned, that deck is significantly weakened. And I thought that Simic, even during that week, could have potentially been the best deck. I think that people just weren't necessarily looking at it under that lens. The conversation was just dominated by Mono Black. Sure. Yeah. So you got kind of a freebie set of bands where you just powered up a bunch and uh, they lost some stuff. I guess you lost once upon a time. I I won't call it a complete freebie, but uh, yeah, I I think it's a very interesting process how you arrived at this list. Why don't you actually read the list? I will give you the honor of doing that just so our listeners know exactly what deck you were talking about. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, 10 mana creatures. I have four Gilded Goose Three Elvish Mystic, three Llanowar Elves. The split is because of Legion's End, even though I think Llanowar Elves is way better. With Once Upon a Time, you have to add more mana creatures so that you have a higher chance of actually playing one on turn one because your deck is wildly different when you have one and when you don't. And also add some lands. Like a lot of people were playing like 21 lands with Once Upon a Time. I have 23. So yeah, 10 mana creatures. 
Uh, two scavenging is too hard of Kieran in the two drop slot. If they kill your mana creature, you need something to do on turn two. These cards kind of stink, but it is what it is. Uh, three walking ballista, four jade light ranger, four hydra crisis, four wicked wolf, four Nissa who shakes the world, four Oko, 23 land, including three Nykthos, which is a weird number, but this is not a deck that is hyper-focused on actually achieving devotion and doing wild things. And you don't have burning tree emissary. You don't have things with a lot of pips like Vivian, really. So I think... You want to draw like one Nykthos per game, but doubling up isn't something that you necessarily want to do, unlike the previous Devotion versions. And then, yeah, 10 sources of blue mana to cast Oko. You also have Gilded Goose. And then that could change, but it's like tough to balance the amount of forests and like how many Yavamayakos and stuff you want. And then uh, the sideboard, four Negate, two Reclamation Sage, two Aether Sphere Harvester, two Life Crafters Bestiary, two Aether Gust, three Lovestruck Beast. Okay, where do we start? What do we want to talk about first? Do you just want to talk about card-by-card basis, what we're doing here? Do you want to talk about matchups? How do we best approach talking through the Simic Devotion deck? I guess I'll start with just the, the deck itself. So this deck is good because you like kind of what we were talking about with Flash, like you you have the fast clock, and then you also have Krasis as a late game. You don't have much in the way of disruption in the main deck, at least, but there aren't a lot of decks that actually necessitate having disruption. So there are things like the ramp decks, Simic Nexus, the Lotus Field combo decks that are a very small portion of the metagame now, but mostly the metagame is just like aggro and midrange and some amount of control, I guess. But yeah, just having... Things like Oko and Nissa to pressure those decks, Hydra Crisis to go over the top of people. You have Walking Ballista and Wicked Wolf to interact with the the beatdown decks and everything. Uh, this deck is just very, very well positioned against the vast majority of the metagame. And then the sideboard is where you hope to actually clean up against the combo decks. But it's also worth noting that against something like Simic Nexus, uh, you can just do things like play turn three Nissa and threaten like a turn four or five lethal, which puts the onus on them to do their thing very, very quickly. And obviously fog is quite good against you. You know, something like questing beast might be a fine inclusion or whatever, but you, you do have a fast clock, you know, and that's, that's not something that you should underestimate as far as whether or not you require disruption to beat those decks or not. Yeah. Best form of disruption, killing your opponent. That's the one a lot of people like to default to. And this deck is certainly capable, like you said, goldfish. I, I think turn five is very reasonable and turn fours are the outliers, but they do happen. Yeah. And then against things like ramp, I mean, their payoffs are Ukin and Ulamog, and you have a lot of different ways to mitigate the effects of those cards. Like Heart of Kieran walking Ballista, Nissa lands against Ugin, and then against Ulamog, like you can just go wider than them. I mean, it's possible that they get to do their thing and then you still beat them anyway. Yeah, it didn't seem like Ramp had much of a weekend when it came to the Pioneer PTQs. I don't know if that points to the deck falling out of favor somewhat or just like was effectively farmed by your deck, but not a whole lot floating around top tables. Yeah, it's also just pretty bad against the combo decks. So if like those decks aren't super popular, but they do exist and it's not like the Ramp deck dominates mid-range control or aggro really, it's, it's still you know, very close. It's kind of a toss up. And I expected people to pick up that deck and play it just sort of from inertia. 
and not necessarily out of metagame considerations. So I was concerned about it to some degree, but at this point I feel like there's nothing pointing to the fact that like people should be playing ramp or whatever. So however concerned you are about that can drop a little bit. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, any, any specific questions or comments or anything about the deck in general? Like normally you look at a deck and you're like, Oh, like this is interesting. Why would they do that or make this decision or whatever? Yeah. The number that really sticks out to me is the two heart of Kieran. That is a really interesting slot to fill in that fashion. I would love to know about your reasoning, getting to just that card and then the particular number you arrived at. It's kind of static in in decks like these. So I don't want to claim like, oh, this is like my general insight that led to me playing two. I mean, like a lot of other people are also playing two, but having a thing that lives through Supreme Verdict, lives through Ugin, again, is a card that you can play for two mana after they kill your mana creature, because I expect that to happen a decent amount of the time. I think all of those things are pretty important. And then you have Oko and Nissa that just happen to have a bunch of loyalty and you also want a thing that can protect those. So Heart of Kirin mostly does a, a pretty good job of that. And then there are also just considerations for like opposing Heart of Kirins and Steel Leaf Champion where like you want a four power flyer thing as kind of a defense against those cards and Heart of Kirin just ends up being the best possible thing. So it's attacker, blocker, like lives through some sweepers, just has a lot of general utility. I don't think it's a great card or amazing in the archetype or anything, but there are also ways to crew it, you know, like Ooze, Ballista, Jade Light, Krasis, Wicked Wolf all do like a reasonable job of crewing it. So I don't think you want to draw multiples, which is why there's only two. Uh, but I think the two do a pretty fine job. You mentioned Jade Light Ranger. Is, is that card actively good or is it a compromise that there's really nothing to appropriately fill that three drop slot? It could be Courser. I would actually be fine with Courser. There, there are just situations where it's like you go elf into that and you desperately want to hit your next land and I will just aggressively bin everything uh, hoping to hit a land. And in those situations, Courser is just like a, a value kind of card. It's like, yeah, maybe your next card is a land and you get there, but like it doesn't actually help you dig all that much, right? Like it helps you do its thing if it's, kind of already set up to do its thing but you know when you like play a courser and just like brick on a land and you don't have a land drop it's like well this card sucks it just doesn't right. do anything uh so i think jade light ranger is like more of a, a burst thing than it is uh like a long game like i want to make every single land drop sort of thing so yeah you basically just like want to get to four land and then you don't really care what happens you probably have enough mana to do your thing whereas Courser in something like uh, a Sultai Midranger control deck would make a little bit more sense to me. But I could see setups where Courser is slightly better or maybe the body is better for blocking against aggro or whatever. Yeah, like Jade Light's kind of medium. I would also be fine with something like Tireless Tracker and maybe upping the land count. But Tireless Tracker also only has one pip. So you, you can't afford to make those concessions as far as like not really caring about your devotion until turn five or whatever. But the more steps you take towards that, the worse and worse Nick those gets. So it, it's not like, oh, Jade Light's in there because of the second pip of green mana, but it does make the Nick a lot better too. Is there ever a world where you would consider both the most aggressive and the most devotion centric option 
in Steel Leaf Champion? Does that cross your mind for even a second? Or is it just too critical to have something that's interacting with your mana in some way? Uh, I could see that. I mean, again, that might make me want to add a land. And also, right. Steel Leaf obviously doesn't like play super well with Nykthos if you're trying to play it on turn two. But right. yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, a reasonable consideration. I could see adding a land, maybe getting rid of the oozes, ballistas, maybe like another card that you could shave on, but I definitely like 10 mana creatures. So I would, I would keep those. I like the planeswalkers. What didn't you like? Is, is there anything that you're not satisfied with in this deck right now? You said you didn't think you would change many cards. If there was one on your chopping block, what comes to mind? Well, the, the sideboard was built for what I expected. And normally you see a lot more diversity in the counter suite than just four negates. I mean, we have Disdainful Stroke, Spell Pierce, Stubborn Denial, Mystical Dispute, all sorts of different things that you could play in that spot. But given that I was expecting like Ramp, Lotus Field, and uh, Nexus, Negate just seems like the strongest card against all three of those decks combined. And then Blue White Control was another one where it's like, maybe I'm going to want to counter a Teferi with my first Negate or whatever. And Mystical Dispute isn't necessarily live against things like Wilderness Reclamation. So going forward, depending on what you expect, I think Negates could be dirtied up a little bit. I know that Emma said that she wanted some amount of Mystical Disputes and ended up switching those numbers a little bit. And as there are more mirror matches, the necessity for Aethergust kind of rises a decent amount and maybe Steel Leaf Champion over Jade Light Ranger makes more sense because that card is a little bit better at attacking Planeswalkers. So I could see a a lot of changes like that, mostly just as a response to what the metagame is becoming. And then uh, Bestiary was kind of my hedge against like any sort of grindy matchup. And it seems like those decks don't really exist. I mean, like Blue White did win one of the PTQs, but is not a huge portion of the metagame. I think it will be. I think it's on its way there. And I think the most recent bands have pushed things in that direction. But I'm also inclined to say that when Blue White's even a little bit good. So maybe some bias is there. I have been playing a bunch with it, though, particularly Amnesiac from our Discord won the Pioneer Challenge this past weekend Yeah, with Blue White. And I really liked the way their deck list was put together. Uh, I have been very impressed with that deck thus far. Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's why the best series were in there was because I expected a rise of that sort of stuff, but it, it didn't really come to fruition as far as like the matches that I played with the deck. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, as always, you should adjust your deck accordingly to what you expect. You know, I mean, this this is an article I wrote over a week ago at this point, and there have been a lot of tournaments, a lot of information, and now people know that this is the best deck. They're going to be gunning for it. Presumably, they're going to be playing decks that are good against it. So you need to adjust accordingly. Any fear that we'll record this podcast and something from this deck ends up on the hit list come Monday? No, I mean, you can you can certainly ban Oko, and that's fine, and that obviously changes things. I mean, you can't play Gilded Goose and Wicked Wolf at that point. Uh, so... I would be looking to do something else most likely, but for me, while those mono black PTQs were happening, it was just so easy for me to see that like once the new bands happened, that this was going to be the strongest deck, like the strongest shell, the strongest archetype, Mm -hmm. both in the cards that you get to play, the strategy that it's doing and its role just in the metagame. And if Oko gets hit or whatever, it's like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, obviously some sort of Nissa deck is still going to be viable. I just don't know what shape it's going to take. Sure. What do you think about 
talking some matchups. Why don't we talk about how this deck plays in this new Pioneer format? It feels like we always have a new Pioneer format to talk about on a near week-to-week basis. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned you foresaw how this format would play out. That obviously tracked as you were able to effectively target what's been around. Any particular matchups you want to focus on? Anything catch your eye from this past weekend that you think you have to account for a little bit more maybe? Uh, I didn't do an actual tally or anything or look at the numbers. I know that Yo Man was putting together like his tier list article, and I think that that is out now. But the the Simic aggro decks, like the actual Steel Leaf Champion decks, I think are there are things that I accounted for to some degree. Where it's like oh, I have Heart of Kirin, Jade Light Ranger can get to four power. You have uh, Wicked Wolf, Hydroid Crisis. Obviously, Oko's good against them, but like realistically, their deck is probably just like a little bit better against yours because their average draw is going to be much stronger than your average draw. Like they're going to put you on a bunch of pressure and you can't really interact with their mana creatures. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you want to do some like hunt the hunter stuff or play more Aether gusts, maybe main deck Aether sphere harvester. Like that card is quite good against them too. I don't know. Like there's, there's a lot of things that you could do, but as far as like decks that are popular and scary, uh, I think that's probably my number one just because of how prevalent it is in the metagame. And then Nexus might be number two just because it's a bad matchup in theory, but not super popular. That surprises me to some extent. We haven't seen more Nexus. It does seem like the meta is getting to a place where Nexus lines up really well, uh, especially if the default like green big dummies deck is your deck and not the stubborn denial deck things get really juicy for the nexus decks yeah no i agree and i mean like i said you could do things like play questing beast main deck and that would help you to some degree or maybe try and weave in some main deck disruption i mean i don't think we're in standard territory with like main deck aether gust yet but it might be close Yeah, I've been super impressed with the card as a sideboard card. I'm not playing it main deck yet, but uh, finding so, so many uses for it. Again, mostly playing blue-white control at this point. Four copies in the sideboard, courtesy of Amnesiac, and totally, totally fine with that card. has been fantastic. It's just good against so many decks. Yeah. You know? And especially like when Mono Black was the biggest thing, it's like, okay, we can't really do this. You know, We, we can play that card in small numbers, but now it's just like... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of Simic Aggro, there's a lot of Mirror Matches, the combo decks have some amount of green in them, and uh, even, you know, like, maybe the the most prevalent aggro deck outside of the Simic Aggro deck is Gruul, probably, so you, you get a lot of mileage out of it, and then there's still the Hour of Promise stuff, too, so mm-hmm. I would be fine with just playing four of that card. Yeah, been quite good. You mentioned Mono Black Aggro and a decreased role for that deck, but... The deck that finished second in the PTQ, Yama Killer, finished first with the green-blue devotion list. Second place list, Mono Black. And it it really just looks like pre-ban Mono Black, except there's Grasp of Darkness in the uh, Smuggler's Copter slot. And that's it. That's the only real changes we see here. I think we both believed this deck would have some legs going forward. I I was a little unsure of whether it'd have to change substantially, whether it'd have to lean on Soren a little bit more. But look how hateful the second place deck is in the sideboard. It's got four (laughs) copies of Life Bane Zombie, as well as four copies of Noxious Grasp, just ready to go. And Yama Killer still found the victory against the mono black deck. Yeah, Life Life Bane Zombie is a nice one because the... 
the two biggest decks are Simic based, I think. And, you know, not Simic as in like blue based, like they are very much green based decks. So yeah. Lifebane Zombie, uh, we were at a point in standard where that card was main deckable. If you're looking oh, for yeah. a three mana threat uh, in your mono black deck, I mean, you could play that. You could play Spawn of Mayhem. Both of those cards are quite good, but like main deck Lifebane Zombie is completely reasonable at this point. Yeah, would love to see more of that card. Uh, I know a lot of folks hated that card during its time in Standard. Kibler. I, yeah, Kibler specifically. I was usually playing Mono Black, so I was quite pleased I had Lifebane Zombie if you've never cast this before. I mean, I don't I don't know how it looks to someone who hasn't played with a bunch of Lifebane Zombies, but this card is incredibly, incredibly powerful. It's such a great tool against the green decks, especially as they become Planeswalker-focused. Although I will say... The amount of loyalty on these planeswalkers has made Lifebane Zombie less attractive than it was in the past. It's still it's a fine. Lot. It's a lot. But and, Oko has so much loyalty. And Intimidate is it's like kind of worse than Menace, you know? Yeah, it is. And the one toughness against Walking Ballista is obviously not ideal, but like the the main point, the main takeaway is that you're getting some amount of value. You're getting to disrupt them. If you can like push their mana creature, play a two drop and then play a lightning zombie, take their wicked wolf. Like you're, you're in a good position, you know, that sounds strong. Yeah. So yeah, I like that card a lot. Obviously the, the deck was very hateful. They were kind of like, you know, they, they were, they were set up to fight Simic decks and Yama killer to out him. So yeah, they had to be salivating. I mean, I guess you don't know the matchups ahead of time, but this top four is three green-blue devotion decks and this one lone mono-black player who obviously bested a devotion player in the semis, could not get the job done in the finals, though. Well, I also think that they were Yama Killer's loss in the Swiss, too. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I vaguely remember him saying that he he got revenge on his Swiss loss, and I think it was in regards to the finals opponents. So. Nice. Yeah, it, mono black, it's still good. Like a clean swap smuggler's copter for grasp of darkness looks weird, but I also think that those decks could have been playing more removal to begin with. And right. the format is a little bit more creature friendly now, creature centric, I guess, without, you know, mono black and like mono black just did everything and it did it super well, right? Like there's not really a whole reason to play other creature decks. And then they kind of got to sideboard in a bunch of removal and Kalidas's and just like dominate creature matchups too. So with that deck being weakened, I think creature decks have just gotten a little bit better in general. Word makes sense to me. Anything you want to, any adjustments you want to make if this deck becomes more popular, if people, all the people who are sad and thought they had to put their mono black tools away, if they are able to pick them up again, what kind of moves are you looking to make? Four copies of Rankle is surprising to me. I just don't get it. It's a lot. It is a lot. Uh, I also think we're still kind of in a format where main deck Thoughtseize isn't, it's not a sacred cow, you know? You can certainly shave on that card in, you know, like these these decks are sort of grindy and it's a bad top deck and even Thoughtseizing like the green decks can just feel like sort of a mistake, especially when it's in lieu of like playing an actual threat on curve or whatever, because all their cards are powerful. They all kind of do the same, you know, like a lot of the time you would prefer to just be curving out and pressuring right. planeswalkers that way. So uh, Spawn of Mayhem is a card that I did like beforehand and I, I think is still quite good. Aethersphere Harvester is another card that I just think is a slam dunk as people are playing more and more creatures. I definitely like Grasp of Darkness a lot. I was also very happy with the second Urborg, which 
very few people have picked up unless they copied my exact list. But granted, we don't have Copter to filter away extras. So it's a little bit more dangerous. But I, I still like it. I still think it's like pretty low opportunity cost. Okay. Interesting stuff. Yeah, Gutter Bones instead of Night Market Lookout makes a lot of sense to me. That was the change that I recommended to you. Uh, for Murderous Rider makes a lot of sense. I could see Lifebane Zombie, Spawn of Mayhem over Rankle, just playing more three drops. We'll have to keep an eye on how that deck evolves as time goes on. What do you think? I'm just kind of working through this top eight here because I think it's interesting to see what the green-blue list was able to successfully prey on. Uh, also, some copies of Blue-White Control. I mentioned... I think this deck has gotten much better. Not a huge fan of the lists we're seeing here. I am in favor of moving away from some of the hard planeswalker focus and really getting back to just being a little leaner. And, you know, having all of your uh, counter magic options, I've been very pleased maxing out on sensor. Totally fine card. You find places to use it. If not, you're cycling it, empowering your dig through times. I think that play pattern is completely fine. But what has been your experience against blue-white control in this new format? And just talk about it a bit from the green-blue side. I assume probably a little bit tricky in game one, but when you get to game two and three, you have a lot more options. Uh, Game one is... So I I typically like these matchups just in general because a lot of it is about forcing them into bad positions. So it's like you try and set up a, a spot where... They have to cast Supreme Verdict, but you have Nissa as a follow-up, or you have Oko with a food that's able to uh, make a 3-3 that is able to keep attacking them, or you have Wicked Wolf alongside a food. You know, like you just try and put them into very bad positions and cut off their outs as much as you possibly can. And I have found that these sort of iterations of blue-white control, where they don't have a lot of counter magic, is just like absorb and syncopate in this list. It's, it's pretty easy to make those setups because they don't have a lot of good ways of dealing with something like a turn two Oko. Okay, so there's just a strategic weakness as these decks stand right now. Yeah, uh, I, I don't remember. I, I guess I can look. I have all these deck lists pulled up uh, for Amnesiac's list and what was different about it. I don't know. They posted so many deck lists. Yeah, they had a, a bug where nothing was getting posted for a long time. And then... Yeah. Every deck got posted. Uh, basically, there's there's no ops. They are replaced with Hieroglyphic Illumination, which I really, really like. Play them both. Fewer Azorius Charms. Maybe you could get away with both if you have the slots for sure. Yeah, four sensor, one veto. Four sensor, yep. Four absorb. Yeah, so like the, the veto in particular is a card that uh, can make things a lot easier for them. You know, like sure. you, you jam turn two, turn three Oko or whatever, and you think it's going to be fine and it's just not. And that can take a lot of wind out of your sails. And then there's also a detention sphere instead of cast out in the other list. So yeah, just giving them cheaper answers. Uh, I also noticed that this list has three mystic sanctuary. That's a lot, dude. I have loved that card. And three is a lot for sure. Uh, In general, you have enough islands because you have four of the cycling land as well getting you to your island count being particularly higher than most of these blue white lists play i'm mostly with you that you could probably go down to two instead but the card has been very very impactful for playing these long games like rebuys on dig through time are huge just having persistent access to your supreme verdicts against the creature matchups i've been impressed with it yeah no it makes sense to me so i think game one in general even with MDGX list 
is still in Simic's favor. Post-board okay. things, things get a little bit worse when they bring in four copies of Aether Gust and can set up turns where they gust away your Planeswalker and resolve Supreme Verdict, and maybe it just all goes to hell from there. But you have your own counter magic too. You have Negates. Emma was playing uh, Mystical Dispute on top of that, which also helps a ton. And I think the post-board games are a lot more interesting. Like there's a lot more play counterplay action going on, but if they have the right tools, just, you know, things like Aethergust, Pithing Needle, maybe their own mystical disputes to fight counter wars, then it gets a lot tougher. Word. Yeah, I, I could definitely see a version of this deck that maybe isn't able to dominate Simic because I think that the card Oko is just a very big hurdle for them to try and overcome. But I do think that they can get a list that's like maybe a slight favorite against it, like maybe 60-40. Yeah, that would be my goal for this weekend. I, I, I agree with you that if you set up properly, you can find enough ways to play against them. The fact that your rats are not vulnerable to counter magic, like you've taken off a very big path of play that these Simic aggressive lists typically have access to, like play my things, then hold up counter magic and you're going to die no matter what has traditionally been how these decks have played, like going back to the time of blue green madness and getting that taken away with Supreme verdict changes the way these matchups will play out for sure. Right. Which is why it's about sticking a permanent. That's hard to deal with, you know, that, that becomes the game plan and Supreme to that Verdict. end, Lifecrafters Bestiary looks fantastic in that role. Yeah, that's true. And it's another thing that doesn't get Aether Gusted uh, or Needled or whatever. Right. Uh, so Aether Sphere Harvester helps with that to some degree because it's another thing that doesn't get swept up and you can always continually pressure them post-Wrath or whatever. But yeah, like the, the Bestiary is the one where if you're looking to hard target blue-white, I think that's the best card that you can play. Nice. What other matchups do you want to share some insight on? What else has, what has been your hardest matchup? What have you really struggled against? You mentioned blue green and their aggressive slant. Any other aggressive decks give you a hard time? Does gruel give you problems with its consistent, incredible three drops into Ember Cleave setups? It can. Again, I mean, it's, it's die roll dependent, or even if you win the die roll and don't have a mana creature and they do, it's, it's just sort of off to the races and they have a lot of ways to actually punch through and kind of like go over the top of what you're doing. So it can be very difficult uh, if you are expecting a lot of that stuff. Again, Aethergust is probably the best possible card that you can play because it allows you to set up and keep open this card that's like very minimal investments and they don't really have counterplay against it. And it's, it's just a huge setback for them. It's just so good against them. Here's a weird question that isn't actually very strategically useful, but I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion on it. Does the absence of Once Upon a Time make the one-drop accelerant lottery feel better or worse from a gameplay perspective? Like, obviously, in the Once Upon a Time scenarios, everyone just has it, and the advantage is always to the person on the play. In the non-Once Upon a Time scenarios, occasionally you will miss. Like, you have accounted for that by playing 10 one-drop creatures, which I think is very, very smart. But occasionally you have the capacity to do it and will still find a keepable hand that doesn't contain a one drop. Do those games feel worse than the old way of just everyone always has it? Yeah, it sucks. Uh, if everyone always has it, then you can make plans on how to break that paradigm, right? Where if the in the old mono green devotion mirrors, right, it was like, oh, I'm going to ballista or voracious hydra your mana creature. And then you get to play things like gather courage. 
And then that can potentially like steal the tempo back because you get to untap and then kill their mana creature. Right. And in this instance, you are not incentivized to set up some sort of counterplay. Like you can play hunt the hunter, but then that card mostly just stinks if they didn't actually draw the mana creature. And maybe in that scenario, it's like, well, you probably have a mana creature and they don't, so you should be happy. But then you have this card that is pseudo dead and it just doesn't feel very good, especially against things like the gruel decks. This is almost like an interesting argument for the card existing and for it being like appropriate as a magic card to print. Now, I think that argument completely breaks down when you're outside the context of mirrors. And then it's just like completely nonsense that these right. decks always have access to their one drop. Uh, but maybe this is the one place where like the card is actually net positive as opposed to net negative. It becomes variance in fueled when you don't have once upon a time on both ends because you could just not have it and they have it and you're at a huge disadvantage, especially on the draw. And then there could be games where you decide that you're going to attack their mana creatures and that's your best way to win. And then they don't have it and you end up losing because you have things like Hunt the Hunter that just don't line up against what their draw is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it, it increases variance in both ways. And I think the best way to go about it is like obviously mulligan aggressively if you can afford it against gruel. If they're playing a bunch of wild slashes or like sideboarding wild slashes or something, you're less incentivized to actually do that. And I would just have a game plan that is good against what they are doing normally and not focus on the mana creatures. And Aethergust, I think, is the perfect card for that, where if they play a turn two war boss or rabble master, you can just gust it and get some time back that way. And Aethergust is just strong at every portion of the game, right? Like early, mid, late, it is one of your best cards. And it just points you in that direction, which I think is completely fine. You know, it's just the other way is such a huge consideration because it's the early game. You basically know it's consistent. It's almost always going to happen and there are ways to exploit it. And you just have to move away from that. Now, I think you just don't sideboard ways to kill their mana creatures unless it's like really good or easy, you know? Cool. You, you pulled my nonsense design discussion back to actionable game advice. So well done. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I think variance is good in general, in small doses, uh, or, you know, medium doses, whatever. And I don't like the argument that, well, you can't really plan on them having this specific set of cards. Uh, so that means that you can't plan to like fight them because there's always a different axis that you can fight them on. Right. It just so happened that that was early and important and you knew it was going to happen. So it made sense to try and fight them on it, but it's like, Okay, so we can't do that anymore. What else should we be doing? And there there are ways to do that. This this is also just better, I think. Yeah, right there with you. I, I, I think this is the correct approach presently. I'll also point out that since we're talking through this PTQ that Blue Green dominated, there is a gruel list in the top eight. It plays zero mana creatures, unless you want to count Burning Tree Emissary as a mana creature, which I don't. But it's a completely different take on how you should build the deck I have a hard time believing that giving up one drop accelerants is correct. They're just so, so powerful. They're so different from what every single other deck has access to. I think they're a huge draw to green and it's hard to sell me on this idea, but it's interesting. It's an interesting approach. Props are trying something a little different. The difference with this is that they're not playing the war bosses and rabble masters, right? Oh, correct. It changes the entire deck for sure. 
yeah, you're you're playing Bone Crusher Giants and Gruel Spellbreakers, which are just good cards on average, and they have Experiment One and Pell Collector in the one drop slot, and it's you know you can play Elvish Mystic and Llanowar Elves in Gruel, and that's all well and good, but without Once Upon a Time and only having eight of them, I know that sounds silly. Trying to build your deck around playing Turn Two War Boss just increases variance by a decent amount. I know it's like kind of silly because a lot of the gruel decks weren't even playing four once upon a time to begin with. They should have been right mistake. Yeah. But yeah, this, this one is just a little bit different. And I will note that having Pell collector experiment one and having all of your cards be threats does make things like Aether gust a little bit worse because if they go Pell collector voltaic brawler, it's so much harder for you to, actually stabilized behind an Aether Gust than if they just played like Elf into Rabble Master. And right. this list also has four Blossoming Defense, which can interact right. with the Aether Gust. So this list, to me, is actually more scary than the all-in Rabble Master one. Certainly against your deck, certainly against the card Aether Gust, it is a very nice adaptation. And with a large number of those cards across this top eight, you see why this deck did pretty well in getting here. Yeah, I mean, by turn three, you're very good at having, like, one pretty big blocker, and then turn four, hopefully you're in double spell territory, but, like, if on turn three, they have three big things attacking you, you're pretty dead, and that is sort of how you beat Simic, uh, at least this right. version of Simic. Like, the the Simic uh, Steel Leaf Champion deck probably doesn't really care that much. Also, like, having Steel Leaf Champion would help this specific gruel matchup a lot, too, just having the fourth toughness, so. Yeah, that's true. What else you got for me? Uh, I mean, I guess we'll keep going with this PTQ. One more deck in the top eight. It's Phoenix. Surprising to see this deck still floating around. I've, I've never actually been high on this deck in Pioneer. It hasn't sold me yet. One of the things I used to say about it, though, is I thought it was best at accounting for basically small creature decks and having the ability to play multiple one mana removal spells and being able to pick off a lot of elves. That's kind of what this deck is supposed to do, uh, not to mention for Thing in the Ice. So here's another attempt at Phoenix. How do you think this deck lines up with what you are doing? This is one of the matchups where you can very easily expect your first three things to die. Mm -hmm. And that means that your Nykthoses are just going to be atrocious, which makes me very happy to only have three in my deck. Uh, so if it's there, just providing colorless mana, that's completely fine. And then you don't have to worry about drawing the second one. So that is a nice little bonus here. It is also a bonus that Thing in the Ice doesn't transform super quickly because they are not really maxing on one mana cards. Like you have uh, Axe into Temper as a couple one mana cards and then Opt in Wild Slash, but there's no Crash Through, Quicken, uh, Tome right. Scour, anything like that. So Thing in the Ice transforming is pretty slow, especially since they'll normally go like kill your thing, kill your thing, then play thing in the ice. And then they only have like two drops left to transform it with. So it's not super easy to kill a thing in the ice with like wicked wolf or Oko, but it is, it's, it's doable, you know? Uh, so that is a thing that is very much in your favor. And then you basically just have to contend with Arclight Phoenix. And we kind of mentioned this earlier with the planeswalkers having a lot of loyalty and uh, life being zombie, just not really, matching up super well against them. And Arclight Phoenix basically has the same problem. Uh, it has a little bit of a benefit where it has haste. And if they draw two of them, that's obviously very bad for you. But I think one single Phoenix is not really a big deal. And yeah, they have treasure crews, but your deck is just like pure gasoline for the most part. So 
they're going to cruise. Uh, if they draw like two lands in one spell, they're probably dead because you're going to cast a Nissa or a Krasis or whatever and just kind of snowball from there. So even though they're very good at killing your dorks and stuff, I still like this matchup. That is somewhat surprising to me. I, just because like, I don't know what this deck is supposed to be doing if it's not exploiting you. Like maybe blue-white control comes as a potential target for this deck and it, it has a good matchup there. But that has been my opinion on this deck from the beginning of this format. I haven't found a lot of inroads for it. And I, th- I think that just continues. I mean, a top eight appearance here. Props to Fred the fifth for making it into eighth place. Well, but, for, yeah. for Fred's deck is likely good against the Gruel Beatdown decks, like the Pell Collector ones, because eventually they'll run out of gas and don't really have a top end. Okay. So this Simic deck does have a top end, and they don't, like, I mean, they can is it charm your Nissa. But a lot of the times they just have to use is it charm early to, you know, dig for lands or kill a, a mana creature or whatever. Uh, so they can't necessarily always save is it charm and keep their mana open and everything. Right. But yeah, you just you have the top end that kind of buries them. And uh, if you're making your land drops and Jade Light Ranger helps with that a lot and you're casting crisis for four or whatever, then I, I think that they're just going to lose to that sort of stuff, especially since you have ways to answer thing in the ice like. Before Devotion moved to like Voracious Hydra and now Wicked Wolf, that card was far more problematic. And now right. you have like the Okos on the splash and everything too. So the fact that you naturally have ways to deal with stuff like that means that you don't necessarily care about this matchup all that much uh, when before it was a struggle. And I mentioned this in the article, like I've, I've built like a lot of team or mid range decks and stuff like that. But like Oko wicked wolf is just better than any of the stuff you get from red, you know, glory bringer, harness lightning, whatever you have the removal in Simic that you need to compete in pioneer 2019 magic. Oko plus wicked wolf better than everything. It's very dumb. It is very dumb. Just waiting for it to show up in modern. Only a matter of time before wicked wolf makes inroads there. There you see occasional ones from time to time already. Yep. Maybe it'll just prove to be the best thing there as well. Any other matchups you want to talk about, Gerald? It doesn't have to be from this PTQ. Just anything interesting you found in your travels thus far with this deck? I mean, we, we talked about mono black. I would like to find a more solid plan for that. I felt like people were just going to be like, well, it's unplayable. And they weren't really going to play it. And I think a lot of people did do that. But now that it has shown up and shown that it can compete, I think you probably need a better plan for it than what I have. And... Okay. Also, after kind of thinking about it, I think if Oko gets banned, Mono Black just might go back to being the best deck, which is like, fine. That's a good place to be, you know, for the format. But that kind of strikes me as what is like Odd. still very solid and very good. Yeah, yeah, that's my assessment as well. Do you have a preference in terms of the Mono Black builds? Like, are you interested in the Soren stuff or do you feel like that's just worse? Uh, I, I tried messing around with them maybe like three weeks ago and my builds ended up being pretty different from Clyde's. Like I was pretty high on Vicious Conquistador and like Stromkirk Condemned into Asylum Visitor, just lowering the curve overall, not playing like the the Grey Merchant stuff. But okay, I, I think that deck is solid and it certainly has a lot more power than Gutter Bones and Bloodsoak Champion and stuff like that, especially with Smuggler's Copter gone. So I, I think it's worth exploring for sure. Cool. Only one more deck I have to mention from this PTQ. Couldn't let you go without talking about it. 14th place, Beekeeper. Take a look at that deck, Gerald. Do you have anything to say about it? Dude, why why do you do this to me? What? You love this archetype. This is your favorite, isn't it? 
stupid soul flare. Uh, <laughs> I, I would assume that I can't beat this deck in a million years. That would be my okay. guess. You will continue to be haunted by soul flare as this format plays out. I am sorry. We have advertised your kryptonite to everyone you will ever play against. If you show up at a tournament that Jerry's going to be at and your only goal is to beat him, make sure you come with your soul flares at the ready. But no, uh, seriously, if, if they play a soul flare that is like hexproof, indestructible, you're flying, dead. flying hate, like what does Simic do against? You can't do anything. Yep. You're not going to race them. Maybe you can race them, but I highly doubt it. You're not blocking that thing. You're dead. You're losing. Yeah, and they they do this very, very reliably. I like the setup. I like how they're building their deck. This deck is probably better than people think it is, quite frankly. It is. Uh, I, I, I like Traverse to try and find okay. this little flare. I mean, then you need to go with Vessel and stuff, but it's it's whatever. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how this deck evolves over time. It has some decent options right now. Every print makes it possibly a little bit better. Any creature with a bunch of abilities, Soul Flare can maybe find a new package. Maybe find something to can actually cast as opposed to Zatalpa. It'll be yeah. powered up a bunch. Look, I got two Ooze's main deck. I got a chip and a share, you know? You got something. Well, I think that wraps it up for the deep dive on Simic Devotion, Simic Food, whatever y'all want to call it. I hope it is helpful. I hope people continue to crush PTQs with that deck list and everything. I'm here as a resource if you want to bounce ideas off me, uh, sideboarding plans, card choices, etc. And yeah, just, just keep crushing it. I, I appreciate it. It makes me really happy to see folks pick up things that... I advocate and do well for, but it is time for question of the week. And every week we solicit the fine folks in our discord for their burning questions. We pick our favorite one uh, judged by no merit or anything, just what we like. And completely arbitrary, arbitrary. Yeah. That's a good word for it. And uh, try and answer it on the podcast. And the person who we select gets a fine arena decklist enamel pin in the mail. Only place you can get them is by getting your question featured. And the question we have selected comes from Kira, a friend of the podcast. She has written some articles on our website too, is what is your ideal view of competitive digital magic? And I think that it's super interesting. Uh, I think that Wizards is still trying to figure out exactly what that looks like and what people want as a result of it. I think the systems that are set up currently, that is basically like, you know, grind mythic every month to queue for this PTQ every three months is not ideal. People are clamoring for more. They would really appreciate something, uh, you know, even more similar to magic online system where it's like, you just have weekly PTQs and stuff like that. And, you know, granted magic online is trying to destroy that system too, but it's neither here nor there. So I think that for the enfranchised players who do want to get to the PT and, uh, you know, the arena tournaments and stuff like that, I like there, there needs to be more online support for those tournaments and more different ways to actually qualify. But it's also not just the PTQ players too. I mean, I think that there are players who are, you know, silver, platinum ladder players who would just like to have some amount of competition and you kind of get that with like the the random tournaments uh the challenges for like 36 packs and stuff like that but it's like there's there's nothing 
really on the line. And for the most part, I think people would much prefer to just play IQs or FNMs and get sort of like the social aspect out of it too. Because like, if it's not super rewarding, it's not scratching that like competitive itch that people have, then why would they participate in that versus doing things in real life that already scratch that itch and also allow them to be social? So, you know, obviously there are people who are just like, I don't like humans. I'd much rather stay at home and play arena and like Godspeed. I I 100% understand you. I get you. But the player base, you know, it's it's the gathering, not the magic, right? Like people want that sort of aspect. I think that's what they would generally gravitate towards. And if arena is not scratching that and it's not scratching the competitive itch, like what are they doing? Well, I I think they're finding their footing still. And I, I do agree with you that the arena competitive offerings are not doing it for me right now. Basically, I don't get to participate in any of them. So I'm particularly cranky about them as I get timed out of every single MCQ weekend. So that's been really tough. And like you said, if there's just a way to have persistent queuing for like one person at a time, I would be so, so much more into that. I understand there's challenges with that, but like this is the shiny brand new piece of software. So I hope at some point we can do something approximating that. And then there's the magic online issues, which are, they're, they're quite bad. I, I think the most recent setup for PTQs is problematic for a lot of reasons. I think the occasional competitive player who is an incredibly important part of the ecosystem is really frozen out hard by these preliminary qualifiers that they're now insisting upon to say nothing of the fact that like in their first few days of existence, they're just not firing, which is a huge problem (laughs) in and of itself. There are the Um, people who are like, all right, I have the time to play in these. I guess these are sort of supposed to appeal to me. And then they just don't fire at all. And it's like, yeah, all right, you blew it. So, so that's bad right now. Hopefully it doesn't remain bad and things get ironed out and there's always difficulty in instituting new systems, but you can't deny there's some issues there, but where there actually hasn't been issues and the thing that actually I will look back on this past year, 2019, as the hallmark of my magic experience is the third party offerings, which have been quite frankly, awesome. Like, obviously I played a ton of fandom legends this year, had a blast playing those tournaments, did very well in them, enjoyed myself. They fueled my content regularly. They really sparked an interest in streaming where I otherwise would have had none. So those were fantastic. There was just Twitch rivals a few weeks ago and that felt like playing a GP from my house and there were real stakes to that tournament. And that was a pretty incredible thing. And you mentioned like having more of a gathering element to these types of events. There's our friends over at Hit the Deck who are putting together a server now, basically trying to do what you're describing, trying to make a more competitive community that has regular tournaments and regular engagement and uh, a a place for players to really grow and and hone their craft. And all these different third-party entities, DreamHack just today announced $100,000 Magic Arena tournaments at their events. And that's a really big deal if you're familiar with DreamHack and their involvement in other esports and other digital TCGs. They have always been uh, one of the Hallmark series as far as that goes. They're going to be in the mix now. So all these different entities coming to the table with really unique offerings. I think that's where the competitive digital itch is getting scratched right now. And I understand that's tough for a lot of people because a lot of things I'm mentioning are invite only. That's problematic. I, I think Hit the Deck is looking to do something a little different and have a much broader inclusion spectrum. That's a really cool thing to see. I think we'll see more of that as time goes on. So 
if you feel a little frozen out of the competitive format right now, I get it. I was right there with you a few months ago. I felt like I there weren't opportunities for me to play competitive magic. It was frustrating. Uh, but as time goes on, I think those opportunities will expand more and more. DreamHack hasn't mentioned exactly how you register for the tournament, but generally their stuff is open, correct? I know you've played some Shadowverse with DreamHack before, those type of events. Yeah, I, I've gone to one DreamHack and then have looked at attending a few others just because it's it's a cool event. I, I went to one in Montreal, I believe. And keep in mind that like, for me to enjoy an event, I basically need friends around like me just being there alone and like wandering a hall. Like it's, it's fun for a little bit, but just at some point, you know, like social anxiety, getting overwhelmed by crowds, not like having some sort of rock of a person that I can lean on and talk to and have that distract me is, is rough. Right. So I was there effectively by myself. Uh, KYT showed up like a little bit on Sunday and, there were some people I knew who were there, like Pascal Maynard was there and I chatted with him for a little bit, you know, but it's like he and I aren't super close or anything. And it was only for a little bit and I made some friends and everything. But yeah, like mostly I, I was alone and I still just enjoyed myself, like walking around the venue, seeing all the cool stuff that all the different esports things were putting on and everything. And uh, also like participating in a digital tournament was pretty fun for me too. And yeah, arena's in the mix. I didn't know that. So that's oh, cool. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna start, you know, seeing if I can attend one of those and see how that goes. That sounds sweet. And hopefully, yeah, three I- different events this year in the U.S. One over in Europe, I believe. Great. Uh, all hundred thousand dollar arena tournaments, and I think there's just gonna be more and more folks who want to get involved with that side of things, and should be more and more opportunities for everyone. Yeah, and uh, to your point, as far as like hit the deck is concerned, like we're we're both in that server. We both really like what they're doing and trying to put together because that part of the player base where it's like you're enfranchised, you play magic, you do care about the social aspect, but maybe you're not like a big time streamer or content creator or pro tour player or whatever. It is difficult to get invites to fandom and stuff like that. You know, like it's, right. it's, it's basically TRGR, you know, the rich get richer. Sure. And Absolutely. I mean, you are effectively a big time content creator and you had to basically, you know, complain on Twitter until you got yeah. a slot, you know? So yeah, I mean, there's still stuff I, I want to be participating in and I'm not able to participate in. So I, I do understand everyone's frustration. I promise. Right. I don't want to turn the corner just because I got invited to a few things. I know it's a problem. But yeah, they're, they're definitely looking to take care of their player base and uh, appreciate, you know, the folks that are in their server and the community that they're trying to cultivate and everything. And if you are a small time content creator, they're looking to uh, promote your content to the other people in the server and everything like that. So I, I think that that whole thing is very, very cool. And if you do feel a little bit frozen out, I totally understand why that sort of thing would appeal to you. It, it's just like a great idea what they're doing. But uh, just give me weekly PTQs on Arena. Like I have qualified for the last three Arena WMCQ whatever businesses, and I played in one of them and. I don't even know when the next one is, but like basically since I did like that ladder grind, I haven't really participated in arena because like there's no huge standard tournament for me to practice for, which is fine. And there's just nothing that is saying like, oh, you should be on the client playing right now because I already queued for the thing. And now I just have to wait two months until it happens. You know, I'm not like technically frozen out. I mean, I could be playing PTQs in real life and everything, 
But as far as like the digital offerings are concerned, like, yeah, it's, it's minimal. And I like arena. I like playing from my house, you know, like, give me a reason to please. It's so strange to just be something that you pass on except for one weekend every three months, like yeah, four times a year. How is that? I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, hopefully that that is one of the big things that I would like to see change in the coming year in regards to the digital OP. I, I will say, though, the way the MPL worked this year, the churn in it, the rise of new faces being added to the MPL, obviously Chris Kavartek going to be the poster child for someone who played his way into an incredible position from go, basically go follow, nothing. Go follow that guy on Twitter. Absolutely. That's that's one of your future stars of magic. But he represents the possibility of playing your way to something from nothing. And damn, is it hard. Like what he has done this year is so impressive and so honestly unlikely. And I'm sure he would be the first person to say that to you. Yeah. Like all you have to do is top eight every single tournament you play in and then you can be in the MPL. It's like, huh? It's it's crazy, but like it should be really tough. And I, I mean, it's never going to be reflective of the hard absolute top tier like there's too much variance in magic to ever grab those people but that opportunity still being there is something there just has to be some more pathways to make it feel more attainable like let me have the chance to try and qualify for more digital mcqs and then i believe that path is something that maybe i could get to maybe i'm just deluding myself that's fine a lot of us delude ourselves uh and that has been the basis of competitive magic for a long time but Ultimately, let me make that mistake. Let me give you my money and enjoy the ride. And then I think Magic Digital OP will be in a much better place. Yeah, I mean, even if they don't want to do it themselves, I mean, if they could partner with something like Twitch Rivals or DreamHack, where it's sure. like, you know, we're we're going to run this tournament like the WMCQ thing through our like client software. And then the people who go seven and two or whatever get to qualify for a tournament that Twitch Rivals puts on or something, you know, like just try and offer more of that stuff because people want it. Yeah, for sure. And obviously they have shown the ability, like you said, to put up those cues and have them be a ranking system. And you're right. That's a great way to qualify for the next uh, Twitch Rivals event and just have some stakes to play for in the client on a weekly basis. Right. And then you get the cross promotion going on and everything. And I think that kind of everyone wins and all they have to do is like put up a queue, basically maybe advertise it a little bit. Fingers crossed that we are headed in that direction. Uh, I will say that I think for the most part, things are getting better. Yeah. You know, uh, I agree. Th- there, it, it does kind of seem like one step forward, two steps back in yeah. a lot of aspects, but I do think that eventually, and I don't know, what eventually means, you know, it could be two years, could be 10 years. Uh, I have no idea. But I think that at some point we will get to a place where it's like, hey, things aren't too bad. And then that will be game. Game.